Welcome to the On Centerline podcast, a show where we discuss the trials and tribulations of learning to fly from both the student and flight instructor perspectives. We feature real aviators in all different chapters of their careers, talking about the things we all deal with, but rarely discuss. So join us as we take on the challenges, hardships, and celebrations that pave the runway to being a professional aviator as we strive to stay on centerline. Hey everybody, welcome back. It's been a little while, it's been a very busy summer and I uh, haven't got a chance to make nearly as many podcast episodes as I was hoping to, but now that uh, fall seems to be on its way in at least, um, as the flying slows down, I should have some more time to record some more podcasts. So, um, but yeah, as I as I mentioned, it's been a busy summer. I've been doing a lot of pre-solo checks, a lot of new students soloing. So I've been going up with them uh, prior to their solos just to make sure that they're going to be safe out there and that they know the things they need to know. And through this experience, uh, through through all these flights I've been doing, I've, I've really identified a lot of holes in students' knowledge and abilities as they are moving towards their first solo. So I thought we'd take the opportunity today to talk about the things that every student pilot should know or be able to do prior to their first solo. And this is by no means a comprehensive list. These are just the things that... Through the past few months, as I've been doing all of these pre-solo checks, for that matter, even some mock check rides, um, these are the areas I've seen deficiencies in knowledge and or ability. So I thought we'd uh, cover these topics. And and for you flight instructors out there, hopefully you can uh, use this information to make sure your students are uh, competent with these with these topics and these skills. And uh, for you student pilots out there, If these are things that you haven't done or don't know, uh, be sure to study up on them or talk to your flight instructor and make sure you get some good training in these areas before you go out on that first solo. All right, so let's dive into it. Let's see here. I got my list and we're going to talk about some things first uh, from a knowledge standpoint, things that you should know before soloing. Now, I'll start this off by saying I personally, and this may be an unpopular opinion, but you know, it's my policy as an instructor that none of my students solo prior to passing their FAA knowledge exam. And not only do they need to pass it, but all my students for all certificates and ratings need to pass their knowledge exams with 80% or better. I know the FAA only requires 70%, but That's not good enough for my students, and uh, so they're held to a higher standard. 80% or better, or they have to retake it, and I make that very clear to them up front, and we work together to make sure that they're going to uh, score 80 or better uh, before they go and take that. But I have my student pilots, my my, uh, pre-solo students, take that knowledge exam prior to their first solo, because the way I see it, If they don't know enough to be able to go and pass that test, they have no business being out there flying around by themselves. And unfortunately, uh, these topics that I'm about to cover are things that I think a lot of people would agree that any 
pilot, whether they're a student pilot or not, who's out there operating an aircraft in the national airspace system should know these things. But unfortunately, we've had some deficits in this knowledge uh, with a lot of these pre-solo students that I've been seeing. So the first thing is airspace. We need to know the different classes of airspace. And for that matter, we need to know the weather minimums that are required for us to fly in those airspaces. Now, one could make the argument that a student pilot isn't going to be flying in any airspace that they haven't received training in and that their instructor hasn't signed them off for. And while I would usually agree with that and, and hope it to be true, there are at times extenuating circumstances where a student might find himself or herself in a situation that requires them or or maybe not even requires them, but where they find themselves flying in airspace they weren't planning on being in, whether knowingly or unknowingly. And so they need to know uh, the requirements for being in each airspace, how far away from clouds they need to be, what type of visibility they need, and you know what permissions, of course, they need in order to fly in any given airspace. So as an example, at Twin Oaks, we are a class golf, class G airport, okay? And uh, class echo starts at 700 feet above ground level. That's also important to know what the limits of class echo and class golf airspace is in the area that a student is flying in. Just to the north of Twin Oaks, though, we have the Hillsborough Airport, which is a class delta airspace. And it's one of the busiest class deltas in the state, uh, probably in the country for that matter. But, you know, I don't typically endorse my students to go to Hillsborough um, at all, generally by themselves, uh, but let alone when they first start soloing. However, what I do is make sure they have training in class Delta and specifically at Hillsborough because I do give them an endorsement to go into Hillsborough only if a landing at Twin Oaks cannot be made safely or within the student's comfort level. Twin Oaks can be a challenging airport to get in and out of, and uh, there are days where even on, on nice days, a landing at Twin Oaks can be a little challenging for students. And if they ever find themselves in that situation, they know that they need to just go up to Hillsborough where there's bigger runways, more options for runways and, and wind, and uh, they can land there. So I make sure that they are proficient in talking with the tower and operating in that airspace and familiar with the airport. And then I give them the endorsement saying that they can go there only in the event a landing at Twin Oaks is not feasible. But if they didn't know how to operate in that class Delta airspace or how to properly enter it or get the weather um, and they weren't familiar with it, that would be a problem. And so I make sure all my students are, are familiar with the class Delta operations. And uh, of course, even though they're not going to be going into the class Charlie airspace at Portland uh, by themselves, it is fairly close by. And if they're not familiar with the area and where the boundaries of those airspaces are, they could very easily accidentally fly into the, the Portland airspace. So um, just having this knowledge of airspace, the boundaries, the limitations, the weather minimums, the permissions required, the equipment required, this is all just, just standard knowledge, in my opinion, that anybody operating an aircraft needs to know, regardless of whether they're a student or not.
All right, next, again, this is something that seems maybe obvious, but emergency procedures. You know, there is a long list of items that every student or pilot is required to receive training on by the instructor uh, endorsing them for solo prior to them soloing. This is in part 6187D, okay? 6187 Delta outlines all of those items. And certainly emergency procedures is one of those items. However, lately I've been seeing, again, a deficit in the the knowledge kind of required. And so typically what I'll see is I will present an emergency situation to a student and they will reach for a checklist which is not a bad thing by any means. We need to be using checklists. However, they will be relying on the checklist to the point where if this emergency were real, they would be wasting precious seconds or even minutes just going, finding this checklist and going through it when there should be other things that are prioritized in that moment. So these emergency procedures need to be memorized. They need to be memorized and they need to be second nature to the point where, you know, when I say, oh, you lost your engine, what are you going to do? It's just, it just, they, they hit play on that, on that record in their head and they start going through like their ABCs, right? Airspeed. And they're trimming for that airspeed. Best place to land. Okay. Let's find a, a field. There's a good one right below us or right, right to our, our left. I'm going to head straight for that field and get over the top of it. It's this proficiency with the emergency scenarios and the memorization of the checklist items and the procedures that seems to be lacking. And so uh, it seems to me that so many students are just trained to look at the checklist and go off the checklist when in reality, if they're facing a problem like that, they're just not going to have the amount of time that they are taking in these simulations to deal with the problem. So we need to make sure our students have these emergency checklists memorized. Certainly use the checklist uh, to back up your flows, but have the flows memorized, especially the key items like in the instance of a engine failure, they should know that they should first be looking at the gas, right? Looking at the fuel, making sure the fuel's on, making sure the mixture's in, making sure the primer's locked. Then looking at the air, making sure the throttle's open, making sure that the carb heat is on if it's a carbureted engine or an alternate air source um, if you have one. And then making sure there's spark, right? Making sure the magnetos are on. So those things need to be memorized and they need to be addressed and, and checked immediately through memorization then followed up with a checklist, time permitting. Next, we need to make sure our, our students are familiar with the area they're flying in. And not just by hitting the direct to button on the GPS. We need them to be familiar with local landmarks. They should be able to basically go out and navigate in their practice area to and from the airport completely through pilotage. They shouldn't need a GPS. They shouldn't need a chart. I'm not saying that you you can't use a GPS or that you shouldn't have a chart with you. All I'm saying is they should know the area well enough that they can just look out the window, tell where they are, and know how to get uh, leave the airport and come back to it without requiring any external sources of information other than what they see out the window. 
Next, again, this is another one that seems perhaps a little obvious, but airworthiness requirements. You know, we are getting ready to sign this individual off to take an aircraft out into the sky by themselves. They need to know and need to be able to determine if that aircraft is airworthy or not. And so many of the students I've been working with, I ask them, hey, how do you know this aircraft's airworthy? And I get blank stares. Um, Or they'll say, oh, I I run the checklist. Or, um, well, I'm doing a pre-flight. The answer, while, while parts of it may be correct, is so far from the full story. And when we get into things like required documents or required inspections, these are things that they've never even heard of or seen. So from day one, I'm making sure that my students know how to look up the maintenance records of that aircraft, make sure that it's in compliance with all of its inspections and airworthiness directives, making sure that all the documents are present, and making sure that the aircraft has all the required equipment that is required for daytime VFR flight. Okay, part 91205, they need to know where this information is. And they should know these acronyms, A Tomato Flames. If they don't know the whole acronym, that's okay. But they need to know the pieces of equipment in their plane that are required. And at the very, very least, they need to know the regulation uh, to find this information in, 91205. So that if they had any question, they could go and reference it. So the A Tomato Flames, Arrow for our documents, Aviates for our inspections, And I just want to clarify something for the AVIATES acronym because I see a lot of misunderstanding with the AVIATES acronym. So while uh, there are valid variations of this acronym, here's the variation I use, and I'll tell you why certain variations are wrong. AVIATES is A for annual, V for VOR, which of course is only required for IFR flight, but nonetheless, the VOR inspection, I I is a number one for a 100-hour inspection, which is only required if you're operating for hire. A, again, is ADs, Airworthiness Directives. T, Transponder. E, ELT. And S, Static System. Okay? Now, I see people doing other variations, which would include something like the second A instead of ADs, uh, would be altimeter, or or they'll have the first A as altimeter, then they'll have the V for VOR, the I as inspections, and inspections they would include annual and 100 hour and things like that, and then they would go on and say that the uh, T is transponder, or the A, the next day would be their ADs, the T transponder, ELT, and then they'd say static system again. So they have altimeter, and static system in the same acronym. I ask them, whenever people come and tell me that, I say, show me where your altimeter uh, inspection is and when it was done. And they might find it. And then I'll say, okay, now show me where your static system inspection is. And they'll just be looking forever and ever. And they'll never find it because it's the same inspection as the altimeter. The static system and altimeter is one inspection. So if you were using altimeter in the aviates acronym and static system you are just saying the same thing twice and not being very efficient with uh with the use of the acronym so a is annual v is vor 
I is one for 100 hour. The other A is airworthiness directives. T is transponder. E is ELT. S is static system. Every single one is a unique and individual inspection. All right, that's kind of a side note. Anyway, so our students need to know what makes an aircraft airworthy. They need to know what inspections are required to have been done and when they were done. They need to know what documents the plane needs to have with it. They need to know what equipment they need to have operational. And for that matter, they need to know what to do with inoperative equipment if it's not required for their flight. And then finally, of course, they need to know how to do a thorough pre-flight inspection, which most most students do. I think that's covered pretty well. Um, it's rare that I find anything glaring that's overlooked in a pre-flight. But uh, those are kind of the four things that make an aircraft airworthy. Proper inspections, proper documentation, proper equipment for the uh, type of flight being conducted or the operation being conducted, and then the final determination by the pilot in command through a thorough pre-flight that the aircraft is safe and airworthy. All right, so those are a few of the things that every student pilot needs to know before doing their first solo. Uh, And again, by no means a comprehensive list, but just some of the areas that I've seen deficiencies in. Let's move on to all the things a student pilot should be able to do prior to their first solo. Again, these are areas that may seem somewhat obvious, but I've seen deficiencies lately um, in these skills. So first and foremost, and this is one I'm very passionate about, power off landings to runways. We should be able to take any student who's ready to solo, take them onto the downwind leg, pull the power on that engine, and they should be able to put it on the runway. We're not talking about a power off 180 here. They don't have to hit a 200 foot long spot or or any spot for that matter. They need to just be able to get it on the runway in the first third of the runway. Now, for places like Twin Oaks with shorter, smaller runways, this can pose a fairly significant challenge, certainly compared to other airports with nice, long 6,000 foot, 150 foot wide runways. But nonetheless, wherever you're operating out of, you need to be able to lose an engine in the pattern on the downwind leg and bring it back down onto the runway. This isn't just a skill for that one-off chance that you lose an engine in the pattern. We all know that, you know, it's it's a pretty small chance you're going to lose an engine at all, let alone in the pattern on the downwind leg. But the point is that this skill is half of what's required when it comes to losing an engine anywhere and being able to put the airplane down in a given spot. When we are doing engine failures out in the practice area, I'll pull the power. Oh, you lost your engine. What are you going to do? So many students, they'll do one one of many things. First, they'll either choose a spot that is so far away, off in the distance, when there are perfectly good and viable landing spots right below them. So I tell everyone, when you lose an engine, where's the first place you should be looking for an emergency landing spot, assuming there's no runways within gliding distance? The answer should always be right below you. 
If you don't find anything directly below you, then you can start moving your eyes outward to try to find the closest viable option. Once you've determined where you are going to land that airplane, your one and only priority at that moment is turning directly toward it and getting over the top of that space. From there, we're going to circle it and we're going to let our airplane come down right over the top with the intention of setting ourselves up on a downwind leg at approximately 1,000 AGL. Does this scenario sound familiar? We're trying to set ourselves up just like we will be in the traffic pattern on the downwind at 1,000 feet AGL when we pull that power and they put it on the runway. Because if you can set yourself up in that scenario, in that situation, then it's just a regular power off approach to a landing, which if the student is proficient with that at an airport, they should have no problems doing it anywhere else. So these power off landings to a runway are very important. And then when it comes time to do the engine failure in the practice area, um, really instilling the habit of picking a place that is close to you or the closest viable place to you and getting over the top of it right away. Because the other thing I see students do is they'll pick a spot and maybe they are right over it already or it's right off their wing. But then they fly away from it. They say, oh, I got to lose altitude. I'm going to fly off this way. And what happens? They fly too far away. They don't make it back. And they would crash somewhere else. (laughs) So we should never, ever, ever, ever be flying away from the spot we are trying to land on when we don't have an engine. That's why the priority is to get over the top of it circle it all the way down to just set ourselves up on a downwind leg. As far as uh, the rest of an engine failure procedure, again, ABCs. The ABCs need to be second nature. They need to be memorized. They need to happen automatically. I make little stickers uh, that are printed and I put them in my students' logbooks so that they have them and they can memorize those ABCs. I have my own version of the ABCs. Not much different, but a little different than what some people use. So A, of course, airspeed. Biggest mistake I see people making with airspeed, they're not trimming. The first thing a student or or pilot in general needs to do if they lose an engine is reach for that trim wheel. I'm talking Cessnas here, but whatever trim you have and give it three to four full, full churns of nose up to establish and maintain that best glide speed. I hate seeing students just move that trim wheel like one inch at a time. I call it the wicka, wicka, wicka. Because you get the you get the little squeakies on the Cessna trim wheels when they're not when they're old, which they all are, and not lubricated, and they make little squeakies. Wicka, 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 wicka. So we don't like wickas. We like full churns of trim. So three to four full turns turns of nose up trim immediately to establish that best glide b best place to land we already talked about it c checklist again this should be memorized i use the gas acronym gas g is for gas fuel is on mixtures rich primers in and locked a is air throttles open carb heat is on if you're flying a carbureted engine 
S is spark, making sure the magnetos are on. If all of those things are true, if all of those things happen, assuming this is just a straight engine failure, right? We're not talking about your engine blowing up. We're talking about just a straight engine failure, just stops running. If you do all three of those things, your engine should come back to life because chances are one of them got moved or turned off or something. If they don't come back, if the engine doesn't come back on after you do all three of those things, you're probably not getting it to come back on because those are the only things that would realistically stop an engine from running mid-flight. From there, we have D, declare, okay? Uh, This is, of course, calling up 121.5 if you're not talking to anyone else. Certainly, if you're local, uh, you can call up someone local, um, whether it's approach control or or your local towered field if you're nearby. But uh, 121.5 and squawking 7700, okay? That's the declare. E, ELT, we need to turn our ELT on if we have the capability to do so. Yes, our ELT will go on or turn on automatically if it senses a hard enough impact. However, I don't know about you, but in that situation, I'm not personally trying to impact anything that hard. I'm trying to do a nice soft off-field landing. However, I would still like to receive help and have somebody come find us. So we're going to turn that ELT on. F is forced landing procedures. Run your forced landing checklist. This should be securing the airplane, turning fuel off, mixture out, magnetos off, opening the doors, getting soft things from the back, putting them in front of you, okay, to cushion any blow that you might endure, and then turning the master off just before touchdown. This is a forced landing procedure. This is not, hey, there's an airport right below me. I'm going to land at that airport. If you're landing at an airport, it's not a forced landing. You're just landing at an airport without an engine. Okay. Same thing with the declare, right? If you're if you're going to land at an airport, no need to call up a 1215. You need to be talking on the CTAF or to the tower or whoever you're, wherever you're landing and just coordinating with traffic there, telling them to get out of your way. But if you're out in the middle of nowhere, landing someplace that you either shouldn't be landing or wouldn't want to be landing in other circumstances, that's when we use 1215. That's when we are doing our forced landing procedures. And then finally, G, get it on the ground. This would be the equivalent of some other people who say E, echo is for execute, okay? Some people say execute. Um, I say G, get it on the ground. So after you do all that stuff, A, B, C, D, E, and F, all that's left is for you to fly that plane and put it down on the ground where you intend to. If you do all of that correctly and successfully, you get to move on to letter H, Find a hotel for the night. All right. So engine failures. Uh, that's what we need to be working on, making sure our students are fully proficient with. To that end, they also need to be proficient with engine failures at low altitudes, specifically engine failures right after takeoff. Okay. So this kind of takes us to our next um section here. We talked about the power off landings in, in excess just now. The other thing is go-arounds. Now, go-arounds, of course, are required training. But again, it's coming down to the proficiency of a given student and their ability to do a proper go-around. You know, our aircraft are so, our training aircraft are so forgiving 
and so docile, you can get away with a lot of improper handling of that aircraft without ever really being punished for it. But this is why it's up to us instructors to really hold our students to a high standard. When it comes to go-arounds, they cannot allow that nose to come up. They cannot take the flaps up all the way or too quickly. They must keep the nose down, full power in, getting that airspeed up, bringing the flaps up incrementally while establishing a, a climb. Because while their sloppiness and inadequate technique might slide in a Cessna 172 or 150 or what have you, when they get, you know, a year, two two years down the line, whatever, and they're flying more high-performance aircraft that are not going to be nearly as forgiving, that's when they're going to get in trouble. So we need to make sure that the proper go-around techniques are being taught and implemented and, and upheld. Okay, aborted takeoffs, another thing no student of mine who is going to go solo will have not done. Every student needs to know what it feels like to abort a takeoff and how to maintain control of that aircraft at high speeds as it's rolling down the runway and bring it to a stop. They need to know the signs or the things that they would abort a takeoff for. This comes from a proper takeoff briefing. You can go back to my uh, previous episode, the 70-50 rule, where I talk about takeoff briefings and abort plan briefings. Those are so important, and they're another thing that students fail to be proficient at. Primarily, they'll they'll uh, be taught kind of a black and white, just one-size-fits-all abort plan. They'll say something like, oh, we're going to be off the runway by halfway. If we're not, we're going to abort. If we climb out and we have an engine failure below 500 feet, we're going to go straight ahead. If we have an engine failure above 500 feet, we're going to turn back around and land on the runway. And I'll often ask them, so you have an engine failure at 600 feet, you're going to turn around and land on this runway. And they'll say, yep. And I'll say, have you ever done that before? They'll say, nope. And then I'll go and I'll pull their engine on them at 1,000 feet and they won't be able to get to the runway. So... These pre-takeoff and abort plan briefings are never, ever, ever one-size-fits-all. They always need to be tailored to the pilot, to the pilot's abilities, to their experience level. And then, of course, they need to be tailored to the moment at hand, the situation. They need to be tailored to the location, the conditions, the aircraft, no two days are the same, no two aircraft are the same, no two situations are the same. So you need to make sure you're doing a proper abort plan briefing that is going to be safe and and appropriate for your skill level as a pilot and um, that you have proper expectations for the conditions that you're in, that the airport you're at, and the, uh, the way your aircraft is loaded, what the winds are doing, all of those things need to be accounted for when briefing an abort plan for takeoff. All right, guys. Well, that about covers it for today. Those are the things that I think every student pilot needs to know or be able to do 
prior to their first solo. And again, not by any means a comprehensive list, but these are the areas I've seen deficiencies in over the past few months of doing dozens of pre-solo checks and like I said, even some mock check rides. Um, So please, if you're an instructor, make sure your students are proficient in these areas. If you're a student getting ready for your first solo and you haven't done these things or you don't know these things, go talk to your CFI, get some training in these areas, make sure you know what you need to know to stay safe out there. Really appreciate you all joining me today and we'll see you next time on Centerline.